out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome to the game. This is part two. This is also David Eastall, the C86 show. Anyway, let's cut the chat. Yes, right, we're in the middle of a conversation there with Hugh Williams from the Pooh Sticks talking about everything. And um, then Zoom, something happened with Zoom. And then we had to come back again. So this is part two of that fascinating interview. Anyway, um, I'll leave it to myself to talk um, because I've just edited that first bit out. And uh, this is it. Anyway, enjoy part two. Who take it away. At that stage, because obviously we'd had that real fanzine culture of the 80s, which was amazing and then there was there was the other sort of music scene because there was the kind of the rave the ecstasy rave stuff of the soup dragons and happy mondays primal scream then we had the grunge period but then there was all that kind of north london world that was kind of bands like uh, my my bloody valentine and lush and then there was carter and silverfish the faith healers a band called bleach as well i mean were, were you sort of you know as an as the band of the artists where I mean, when you were looking around at this, where were you sort of feeling that you were sort of fitting in to anything? Um, I, I think it's an interesting question because I think that without sounding really pretentious, I think Great White Wonder was when we became our own band sort of thing, even though obviously we're pilfering from lots of things. It was, I think it was very much, you know, I saw the Stone Roses in in a club in Bristol in 89. And we went, we actually went to Spike Island and saw, saw it, but you can't really, I don't think it was being reflected in what we were doing. Yes. Uh, and actually when we were in Holland making the records, we made three albums in Holland. We always, our friends there, we used to stay with a group called the Night Blooms who were, um, you know, kind of part of that, dare I say it, sort of shoegazy thing. So, I mean, I like my bloody Valentine, in fact, I have a My Bloody Valentine t-shirt on right now. That is, um, that is so fan, fandom at I, its height. I did do it. So we did like some of those groups, but we didn't want to be them, if that makes sense. So, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, some, I can't say, yeah, bleach and all that stuff. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it wasn't really a lot of the, the shoegazy thing it sort of passed me by a bit more. I, cause I, I, I suppose around that time you hit in. I would have been. I was 26 when Great White Wonder came out. You get to the point there where you, I think you, you, you think you've seen it all. Then at that point, <laughs> so it's like a bad version of what you like when you were 18. So yeah, uh, you know, for me, like Sonic Youth and as I said, yeah, a lot of those. So my bloody Valentine and like I saw them play in um, in Holland in Amsterdam at the uh, Paradiso in '92. So that was when Loveless came out, I guess. Um, yeah, and there was then the other bands. There was like Gay Bikers on Acid. There was the Wonder Stuff, um, Pop Will Eat Itself, Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Yeah, um, I mean, did any of those kind of sort of? Not really. <laughs> um, Just went straight past. No, yeah. I mean, I like the, the Stone Roses. As I said, I saw them in a, in a club show in Bristol. Uh, which was about May or June '89, when the, just as the album was coming out, it's like a small 400 capacity club. So that was quite a memorable show, and I did think think that was really good. I saw the Lars a couple of times around the same time, which I, I like them. But um, 
you know, I don't know really. I was, it's, it's uh, some of those other things I worked on, particularly, yeah. What was the horrible name? Grebo. Grebo. Bands. Yeah. I, I was always kind of, as I said, I, I, I was kind of sporty and clean shaven. I didn't really like the idea of, you know, having greasy hair and <laughs> stuff like that. You weren't yeah. doing dreadlocks, were you? You weren't, gonna be, you weren't going to be part of the levellers, were you? No. <laughs> I do work in class with that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't going to get a dog on a string and go get a bus, go on the road. That's what we did in the 90s. I didn't, could. I'd have died. But then, you know, because obviously, you know, we had that indie pop world. You were very much there, you know, where all those bands were fantastic. But, you know, we're still sort of in the, you know, c86 kind of world and then obviously things were changing and then Britpop was bubbling under at this stage about to explode and i mean did you sort of feel a moment with the band sitting around thinking the next album which was going to be um yeah million seller did that was there any sort of feeling that this this could have gone either way for the band uh no i think what happened with great white wonder actually a lot of the stuff that happened with acoustics was totally accidental and actually great white wonder was the same because even we we recorded that ourselves with with our funds because we we were still doing things with fear so it was all very self-sufficient and we went and spent more money recording it and we were very happy with the record and the record was just about to come out on fierce which was us doing it ourselves ostensibly through rough trade and rough trade went bust this was when rough trade distribution went down and we were owed quite a lot of money to us quite a lot of money but also like all the big big independent labels went down it was a, a big thing this was in uh yeah it started 91 um and we literally didn't have enough money to like press the record up and there was a, a lot of kind of um labels having to be sorted out and even the bigger labels like i think this affected you know mute and 4ad and people like that so there was a pecking order really of of the labels that were being sorted out so in the end we 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 signed the we licensed the record to sheree which was you know a kind of a smallish independent that we had i think we'd done a like flexi disc with them before but they had some backing and the way so Great White Wonder came out on Cherie almost by accident or for need because because of this rough trade thing. But also they kind of, they promoted the record in a way, you know, we were still, you know, just maybe mailing out a couple of copies of records or sending one to John Peel, whereas this was the first time where we had like a radio plugger and a press guy. And, and, and even though Formula One had done okay, it was almost as if this was three years after the, the first stuff we did and we had a... a again without sounding pompous a bit of a rebirth of the group because great white wonder did really well we had a lot of press we were back in kind of two-page features in the enemy and we we did a, an evening it, this was uh when the evening session started in radio one so we did a right Mark Goodyear was the the presenter originally of the evening session um and we did a session there and it just opened things up really and and we did a we actually did a few shows and played Red in Festival, which was a big show for us. We got single of the week in Enemy, and all of a sudden, it just it kind of yeah, you know, we would. I, I think we might have been number one in the indie charts. We were certainly top three for a while, and we sold quite a lot of records. And all of a sudden, we kind of had another kind of overnight. Thing. Yes, uh, and yeah. and Spin was it the magazine that sort of voted it 
kind of an help, the album of the year or something like that. Uh, it, what, yeah, it, it, I think we were on the cover of CMJ because it came out on Sympathy in the States as well. Sympathy for the record industry. So it had a UK and a US re release. And yeah, I think we were on the front of CMJ. And, and that's basically when, when BMG pulled up and we signed a major, we, we, we decided to sign to a major. Uh, I think we quite liked the perversity of it. I mean, it was kind of, we, were, we had a long discussion about them, how we were going to make the record. And they agreed that we, we would just go back to Holland and make Million Seller in the way that we made Great White Wonder, even though it didn't quite pan out like that. We had to go and finish it in the States. But to answer your question in terms of, you know, this was kind of slightly before, you know, Britpop really, uh, or people knowing that was coming. Um, and, and when Million Seller came out, it was one of the singles was playlisted on Radio 1, like B-listed. So it was actually on daytime Radio 1 for two or three weeks. And it was still, even though a year later it might have looked really different, but it was still literally Simon Bates playing us in between Whitney and Madonna. And this was start of 93. So the Britpop right. thing probably another year. I think it was just just as Matthew Bannister was starting to fire everyone at Radio One that the Poo Sticks hit the playlist. So uh, it was we were you know we were one of the few kind of guitar groups around on the playlist at the time. So we kind of sort of missed the boat, really. Yeah, yeah. Or got early. We got on the wrong boat. You got on the wrong boat. You went to Zeebrugger. But did you? How did you find? Because you said you recorded part of it in America, which seemed quite exciting. Um, yeah, we, we, we recorded it in Holland, like we re recorded Great White Wonder, and we kind of delivered it, and then they did that. You know, now I'm kind of like a ro old hack with uh, major labels, because after the band, I kind of managed a few groups and worked as an A&R guy, and I kind of I don't know how it works now, but it was kind of that thing where we recorded it and delivered it, and, and I think, you know, there was an internal meeting of, you know, we really needed needed it remixed by this guy, in downtown New York. So yeah, we kind of went over, we recorded, so we re-recorded bits of vocals and recorded some extra guitars and got this guy, Jim Rondinelli, mixed it. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm still, I think Million Sellers a good record. Um, so, but yeah, we, we uh, was it exciting? Yeah, I suppose it was quite exciting. I mean, I, we went, Went to the States quite a few times with the, with the group, really. Um, so, yeah, it was quite, quite exciting. Well, I, I would imagine. I would imagine. And then sort of, you know, because obviously you, you sort of give that impression that it was still much more of a, a hobby band. But at the same time, you know, I mean, most people would have been just, I mean, I come from Norwich. We don't have a lot of bands who ever made it. You know, we had the Farmers, Boys, Higsons serious drinking and everyone else just never got off the ground really I mean that's a bit of a sweeping statement there are a few but you know it's not you know they don't really get beyond their friends and family and anybody they can blackmail to see them live but you know you're sort of you know you're putting out albums you're you know doing tours and and sort of getting front page spreads in, in and double page spreads in the NME so this must be quite a, a kind of a, an adventure at this stage I think when Great White Wonder came out, yeah, definitely that something, it, it felt like we were getting popular. I mean, we were doing particularly, I mean, okay, a festival show is a festival show, but I remember 
getting there. We were we were playing on the Sunday, and we were kind of on the Meldy Maker stage, which so it was a tent, but it was a biggest tent I'd ever seen and I think we got there and I walked over to the stage to see you know to check it out and Captain Sensible was playing and I think he was doing you know new rows or neat 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 or something and the crowd were going nuts and I was thinking oh shit we're on after Captain Sensible and there was still this kind of weird thing where you know it, it didn't feel like we should should be there but the show went great I mean it was it was a really good show and we had a lot of good shows around that time and so it, it was beyond the hobby then. I, I mean, I left the, the, I was working in a tennis centre at the time as a tennis coach. And, uh, and, and the thing with the poo sticks, was people used to think we lied about things, which, you know, there's all this stuff, you know, saying about me being a sports coach and things, and people didn't believe it, whereas actually it was all true. So, <laughs> um, so it did become, it was my job then to yes. poo sticks. For, for a while and I think yeah but signing to we, you know the, we were signed to BMG but we were actually signed to the the North American bit of it so we were on a label called Zoo nothing to do with Bill Drummond's label but we, right. we were signed to Zoo so that's that's the label that released it in the States and then we were kind of almost licensed back to RCA so at BMG in London, we were seen as an international band, so it was all a bit confusing, really. Wow, yeah. that's, that's, that's that's impressive. So then you bring out, you know, in very quick succession, you know, up to the mid nineties. Um, oh, you're born. Um, another couple of our optimistic folds. So was that at this stage? Was were you sort of keeping it together? I think the. It was funny because you say that it was like a hobby. Well, I think after post Great White Wonder and going to Million Seller, we definitely went through that whole pretty horrible kind of being on a major label. And we went from, even with Great White Wonder, we did some shows, but maybe we did a half a dozen or eight or nine shows. So it was kind of still felt quite special and we weren't really a touring group. So, you know, even though, you know, we would try to do good shows. It was kind of still felt kind of special in a way, but as soon as we got on the major label, it was kind of that, yeah, you know, putting us out on the road and, uh, and, and, and it just, yeah, it does. It's, it's, I think we went through what so many other groups go through where we kind of hit that twilight zone where you didn't kind of break through and have hit records and, and you just kind of, you've kind of lost where you came from, where you came from, if that makes sense. Um, yes. And I think, so we toured quite a lot for, in, in, you know, maybe over a period of 12 months, 18 months. And we did a tour of Japan. That was the last thing we did first time round. And, um, and the shows were absolutely fantastic. We did three sold out shows in Tokyo and a show in Osaka. And when we came back from that, it was Christmas time, 93. And we'd lo- the, we were out of our deal with BMG. And, and at that point, I decided I didn't want to do the live thing anymore. So... Uh, even though we did Optimistic Fool. And Optimistic Fool, we actually signed to Atlantic Records. That, that Even though it came out on Seed, Seed was like Atlantic's kind of fake indie label. So right. the deal was with Atlantic, even though it was for Peanuts, really. And and I think some of the songs were okay, but we kind of, yeah, it, it, we didn't. I didn't want a two of the, the records, so we kind of made this sort of slightly, it's, it's not about... 
uh, money, but it sounded like a kind of nasty, you know. I think at that point, the, the group, we, were go- we needed to go somewhere a bit expensive and it was kind of quite a cheap sounding record. Um, and it, it had its moments, but I think at that point, we kind of, it, it run its course. And, and I was working, I'd, even though I was still only in my 20s, I'd started managing a group and I, was work- I did quite a lot of work with Catatonia. I'd been, I was doing stuff with them and I managed this band called 60 Foot Dolls. And, um, and that became my job basically yeah and 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 both those groups it's funny because the Britpop thing which the poo sticks weren't part of those groups became part of that thing and that was in terms of if you wanted a day job in the music industry that was the time to get involved because it was you know the British music scene became huge again and there was lots of lots of opportunities for young people like myself to you know to literally make money and have a job and it became a job for quite a long time then so yeah. So when you, so did you sort of have a moment then after you did Optimistic Fool where you all sat down and said, to quote Dave, David Bowie, no, Jim Morrison, this is the end? Um, we recorded that in the summer of 94 and it came out in the summer of 94. It came out a year later and I was literally, we, so we didn't do any shows. I think we did a, we did a, a live acoustic session on Mark, uh, Mark Radcliffe's show on Radio 1, um, which was myself and Steve Gregory and Michelle who played on the records. And that was the last thing we did. And it, at that point, I was, I was, as I said, I was working with Catatonia and this group 60 Foot Dolls. And even though I was, just, I was in my late 20s, I was, I'd become a, a kind of, yeah, I'd fallen into that. There's lots of falling into things now when I retell the story. There was no grand plan. It was just yes. kind of very much like these things happen. Um, so, uh, no, I think that, no, there wasn't, I think there was a couple of songs that I heard at the time, but um, I think someone else, yeah, I think maybe the guy who, Jim Powers, this guy who signed us to um, BMG, he had a label called Minty Fresh, which was an interesting label based out of Chicago. I think we had some discussions, discussions with Jim about making another record, but, we we I think yeah it, it was Steve Steve was based in Holland and I was traveling the world in other places with my my new music mogul uh, uh, yes. job so so we kind of we didn't know it, we just it kind of I think with lots of bands we never it didn't it, we didn't split up because we didn't really have a band to split so it just kind of stopped yes and that yeah. was it. Did you ever yeah. sort of go, oh, by the way, it's been a couple of years and we still haven't really done anything. That's it. Or did uh, you... No, I think there was... Uh, not really, no. And I, actually, since then, I think I saw Steve about five years after that in a Hell in Love show in Cardiff. And, and I don't think I've seen him since. Right. I mean, we're touched because we still have business, but... I haven't. He lives in Holland, and I have. I don't think I've seen him since. So, yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because I mean, did you ever feel like God? Get a T-shirt. I'm a cult star. Uh, not really, no. But um, it's uh, over the years. I met lots of people where, it, yeah, when I kind of, I don't know, like odd people. Sometimes, um, 
when I was managing 60 foot dolls, so they, t- they toured with the Boo Radleys when the Boo Radleys were literally number one in the album charts. Yes. And Martin, and I think I was like, oh, right. Martin seemed to be, Martin Carr was quite impressed to meet me. It's happened a few times when I've met people and I'm quite impressed to meet them and they seem to be quite <laughs> in the fact that I was the guy from the poo stick. So, yes. So, um, is that, so is that the general, you know, you didn't go back to tennis, did you? Well, no, I, I had a career. A career being... A career in the music business, yeah. And I yes. worked for... But as I said, I managed a few groups. And I had a... I worked for Sony ATV Music, the publishing company, and I had my own little... I had, like, a little independent publishing company with them, and I, I had to sign a bank called Murray the Hump. I don't know if you've ever heard them. They were on two Yeah. My hope is Shopey, this band on V2 that made a record with Don Fleming and a few things. Um, yeah. Yes. You know, so that's kind of what I did. And did you, I mean, apart from the Swansea sound, have you done much, any, any other little mo- musical projects? No, nothing. This is the first time I've done, this is the first any recording I've done in 25 years. So. <laughs> Blimey. Um, and I think Cause, even, cause I was just going to say a lot of people I've done these interviews with they've often you know they've finished the band and they've got a day job but they've been beavering away in the back room sort of still recording and doing little bits and pieces but you you ne- never had that urge again no because I because I'm you know I'm not a musician and I think that after the group quite often I'd meet people and they're like oh, don't you miss it and I was kind of like well no and because I hadn't been in groups before the poo sticks and I wasn't in groups after. So it didn't feel, you know, I was getting enough out of the other stuff I was doing. Um, I think in terms of it being interesting, I think when towards the, the, so I I started doing less than in the music business towards about 2009, 2010. I did some, I was still doing some music stuff and some film stuff. Actually, I did a a couple of film festivals with a, a, a guy called Mark Cousins, this this sort of film critic, filmmaker, who's a friend of mine, and and I, I think I'd stopped doing even I wasn't really doing music biz stuff, and 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 it, actually, weirdly enough, I thought I couldn't do it because I couldn't afford for it to be my hobby. That's it. So I started doing. I still work in kind of sort of creative industry stuff now, but um, I couldn't really afford the music to be my hobby, if that made sense. But then I realised that I could have a hobby because I had the poo stick. So that's when, at that point, we're still always having people asking us to do shows. And I sort of put the put a band together to do indie tracks, which was 10 years ago now, because I, I bumped, I literally bumped into Amelia at the Science Museum in London. I hadn't seen her for years and we kind of made contact. And uh, when this offer came in for the show, I thought, well, as soon as Amelia agreed to do it, I sort of we put this I put this lineup together and we did it and it was really it was good fun and people seemed to like it so then we did a, a whole bunch of shows and you know we played in Berlin and New York and uh, and and it wasn't like oh I really missed this it was just kind of as I said earlier it's kind of interesting that it wasn't just kind of old guys there there seemed to be young people to kind yes. of frame what is here hear it and it was fun to, it was fun to do well it's interesting because you know just briefly i i realized that there's a kind of a passing of time roughly about 25 years 
I mean in that ballpark, where I think something happens and we then get on with the rest of our life. And then, then we look back, not necessarily with rose-tinted sunglasses, but just sometimes reflecting and starting to look or read something. And sometimes you watch a film that you loved when you were young and think, that was dreadful. I can't believe I loved that film so much and watched it five times. But some of the music, it could go either way. But a lot of it sounds actually quite better than I remember, you know. And then there was like these compilations that keep coming out on uh, Cherry Red. And a lot of it, you know, I know, but there's quite a bit, few bands that I didn't catch the first time because, you know, it was difficult getting hold of stuff in the 80s and possibly the 90s. And listen to it and think, God, Easter House are really good. I quite like Easter House. I don't know how I missed them the first time. But then I realised you can only have so much indie pop before you think, um, I'm going to listen to the Bundy Boys now. So it's it's kind of interesting. There is there is a kind of a passing of time that sometimes I think a lot of music can sound incredibly interesting still. Yeah, and I think with, with a lot of the stuff with the poo sticks over the years is that we... It's funny because you're talking about when we did Optimistic Fool, did we almost have like, you know, a meeting of the committee and say, well, we're not going to do any anymore. It wasn't like that. It kind of, it stopped. And then even though there was, I think we re-released uh, Formula One came out on CD in the States on Sympathy. And w there was always interest in the group, but we weren't interested in the interest. We had this kind of vague kind of KLF thing where we just thought, just leave it be let's not ever you know put anything out ever again or re-release everything and we had lots of author offers to re-release stuff and it's actually post doing the gigs and it was only in the last couple of years where we've actually yeah we've been on a couple of compilations but we kind of re-released on tape and great white wonder came out again and a a nice record store day thing on glass and we reissued the you know the box set thing and you know, and we've just done this 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 thing on sub pop and glass with the Vaselines. And it's kind of, I think by, you know, by not just kind of, you know, some of the indie pop, some of the bands that are around at the same time as as us, as soon as the kind of CD age came in, they, they kind of, everything they ever released came out in, on kind of big compilations and things. And we've kind of ignored our back catalogue and actually by doing that, I think it's kind of stoked a bit more interest in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, because there, the there, yeah. there are some small little labels. There's one called Optic Nerve Records in Preston and then there's Fire Station and then there's another one somewhere in yeah. um, there's Fire Station, I think it's Germany and there's another one in New York. This guy just puts out the most obscure little indie bands. But actually it's like, oh, that's really handy, you know, and there was a a band called the Sidleys who got a compilation which only did flexi discs and then the Nivens from the North East. So it's, yeah, I think in a way it's kind of nice that it's kind of come out a bit later because somehow it sort of captures that moment that was the 80s so much. Yeah, well, Optic Nerve is the label that put out on tape again last year. And actually there's, um, it was only 500 copies, but it came out and it kind of sold out in the first week. And there is still an official physical chart and on tape was number five in the chart last year. And which is, and this, I think, I don't know if it was Amelia who tweeted it, but someone tweeted this and it, it kind of almost went slightly viral because there was the poo sticks. I think New Order were in the top three, they put out three things. Then it was us and kind of like Arctic Monkeys and Bowie were below the poo sticks, it was 500 copies that got us to number five in the chart. Excellent. Whereas the first game round, you probably had to sell about 30,000 to get to number five. So 
it was kind of quite an odd moment. Well, nice. But, so, so just, um, I mean, if you could have said something to an 18 year old self, I mean, I just wondered what you would have said to, to them as they were starting out on that creative path. Well, I, I think the, the, the crazy 18 year old didn't, you know, you didn't, I never kind of, it's really odd. I don't think, we had, I never did start out on the path. It kind of, I think, uh, you know, that was the thing maybe about that particular time was um, there was something about the, the, that, you know, C86 or the kind of independent scene at the time was that, it was very small and it was quite inclusive. It was quite easy to become involved in it. And I think that, you know, when the kind of digital age came along and the internet and everyone's sort of saying, this is going to really make it like a, a level playing field for groups. And, and I, I never thought that. I always thought it was going to be really difficult to find things. Whereas with, with something like when we, we put out on tape, if, if, if you were lucky enough to, you know, get in the enemy or for Peel to play you, it was kind of, these were the kind of not tastemakers or these filters that were there for yes. us to stuff that we were into. And, and, you know, I do sound like an old guy now, but it's, 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 I'm kind of a bit more at ease with it, but it's, it's, it, there's so much stuff out there. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to cut through and to find things, you know, and I think we're, it, you know, that, that's still, you know, it's interesting that with the new stuff I'm doing with Amelia is, is you know, we're really committed to doing things on small labels and it feels like the right thing to do. But it, it's kind of, yeah, it's back to that thing where a lot of the time if, if there's a big label or money behind things, that seems to be the, the stuff that's pushing your face, you know, and that's really not what we want to do. So, yeah, well, I, I know what you mean, because I think what I hadn't really realised until I was doing this is that you had those kind of gatekeepers, you know, like John Peel, the NME, and all these little indie clubs that were around the whole country, you know, every city and every town, and obviously London had lots of these little clubs, that, you know, you got to play on John Peel or the session, then you'd get a phone call from the promoter who was some young kid, who would do an indie night on a Wednesday at Norwich Arts Centre, and suddenly you'd be driving to the Norwich Arts Centre and, and playing with a few other bands. So it was a very kind of organic thing, but at the same time, you know, you, you sort of felt like you were at least progressing or certainly not just playing in front of your friends, family and anybody else you can blackmail, emotionally blackmail to go and see you. So I think, so you kind of knew a little bit, I suppose there was that thing that, that you did feel a bit of a scene because, or part of a community because of that very sort of simplistic kind of um, theory behind it all really. Yeah, and I think that when we we did do some shows, actually, I'm thinking at the start of 89 and we played uh, a couple of shows of the Pastels and the Vaselines and, 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 and groups like that. And I think that, yeah, that's another thing in terms of, you know, almost like a community or a scene. So it's it's then you kind of pick up a lot of fans by, you know, being seen as in the same kind of breath as, as, as those, those those groups. Yes. Um, so I'm going to be really unpunk rock now and I'm going to have to move around because my battery's going to go. No, that's fine. That's fine. We were going to talk on. Um, it's very dramatic, actually. I know. Here we go. Oh. Here we go. I know. I'm back. Yeah, so, yeah, I think you're right. There was this kind of, there was a whole kind of ecosystem um yes i i totally agree i think the ecosystem is it was very 
it was very rewarding. It kind of made people realize there was another little something to go for rather than just, I think nowadays, and, and you mentioned that there's just so much out there and you're not sure where to look and you get completely lost and give up. And I think in a way, and, and you, you, know, you mentioned that Def Jam Records, but I remember John Pitt being obsessed with John Peel, recording his shows, then get my TDK D90 cassette and get very excited, excited with, you know, hearing, you know, Roxy Chante or, you know, LL Cool J when he was still seemed quite cool or all those street sound compilations or the Bundu Boys or Gregory Isaacs or sort of Napalm Death. I think, it, you know, he kind of filtered all that for some little, you know, little indie kid like me to kind of go, oh, that's marvellous. John's played it. It must be good. Uh, yeah. And I think I, I can remember the first time he played on tape you know we literally just sent it to him and, and and it felt really kind of surreal but also a bit like oh yeah of course this is this is kind of what he does and and it kind of and even now as a guy you know in in my 50s it's kind of it's and I, I work with quite a lot of sort of young art I'm not talking just music I work I work in kind of regeneration now so I work with young tech companies and artists and things and it's it's trying to get across it's, it's there's something about very much about just doing you know of trying to find that person who's going to give you a break or you know there's as I said, there's a, there's a lot of gatekeepers out there in, in a bad way and i think that that's what you know, i try to do when i work with young artists is is that you know without comparing myself to john peel it's that kind of opening the gate and letting people in and, and seeing what happens because yes uh, and I think that's yeah, and and I think in the the kind of um, and and I don't think it's as easy as people think. With you know, there's a lot of access now because of digital stuff, but it's still there are a lot of gatekeepers out there. Um, and I, and I think that's 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 I'm kind of interested in that, and that's almost what we're talking about a little bit, or we, what we're going to talk about with the Swansea Sound Project. There's lots of stuff about access to you know we're going to be singing about the the state of independence. So that's kind of what we're into. Yes, absolutely. Yes. The influencers. You need, did you ever see, just briefly, did you see that the film, The Fire Festival, where you had those, this kind of weird festival these young entrepreneur types decided to put on, but they didn't really put on any bands, but they just employed lots of these glamorous models on Instagram to sort of promote it. So people turned up, but there was nothing there. It's a simplistic view of the film, but it, it basically doesn't actually exist, but they, they promoted it to, to make it this amazing festival that wasn't actually there, so they all turned up in. So yes, it's a weird world, and us 50-somethings just have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, you, you get the gatekeepers, but then the influencers, those, you know, on Instagram is, is a whole nother gig, isn't it, really? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a big sort of social media type person, actually. But um, yeah, it's. I can see that. Um, I, you know, it, that it's. Yeah, I, that it's very powerful and can be. It, I, I found it useful with this new project, and and yeah, it's great. You know, it's a good way of people hearing about you. Um, but I don't know. I'm not really here. I don't want to be influenced. No. <laughs> <laughs> Stop influencing me, please. Yeah. <laughs> Stop that now. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for your time. And um and I'll tell you sure. when I put it out. And um 
Yes. So just, is there more work in the, in, in the pipeline, by the way? Yeah, yeah, defo. We will, we're not going away. We've got, we've got the next single recorded. Um, we're trying to work out if we want to do another cassette or if we're going to do a vinyl. Because I think the idea is to actually pump out a few singles and then maybe put it on a compilation. But it's kind of um, trying to work out. We, I think we're really into doing physical things. But like with this first one, uh, it's literally 50 copies of a cassette plus a download, like a band camp download. We're not doing it on any of the, the nasty platforms. So I think it's just a, a way of getting things out there. And then hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll put it on a, a vinyl compilation or something or an LP. Yeah, uh, but we've got um, we've probably got at least six songs finished, um, and maybe another two or three or four that we're working on. So we, we're almost we've almost got an album's worth already. Yeah, so uh, we've got a song called "The Poo Sticks" as well. So I'm quite that. So yeah, me singing a song a tribute to my old band. That's stick that in your postmodern bong. I know. Yeah, go and smoke that one, Daddy-o. <laughs> I don't know, it's very, that's very, is it called Meta? I can't, there's something. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. It is called Meta, yeah, yeah. Don't ask me Andy about that. It's got that kind of Andy Kaufman thing going yeah. for um Yeah. So, yeah, it's just fun. It's, we're having fun with it, and and, uh, and that's the way it has to be. Absolutely, in this weird day and age. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much. I'll let you go now because um, we all need to go to bed, don't we? And um, yes, take care. And thanks again. David, yeah, nice to see you. Yeah. See you later. (laughs) Bye. See you. Bye. Bye. Indeed. There you go. That's how, um, how to say goodbye. I sometimes edit those out, but sometimes I love the awkwardness of it, so I keep them in. There you go. That's the end of the interview. That was me in conversation with one of the members of the Pooh Sticks and also the Swansea Sound. Do check it out. It's all very exciting stuff. And that was also a big thank you to Hugh Williams for giving me the time for that interview. A massive thank you. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. It's all good. And uh, I've archived all these shows as well, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.